0: We finally have gotten the Israelites into the Promised Land, but now God is going to give them some lessons about in the land. The Battle of Moscow in World War II underscores the necessity of being able to live in the land. In June of 1941. Germany decided to take the focus off of invading England and invade Russia instead. The surprise attack on Russia and invasion accomplished a stunning success. And in just several weeks, hundreds of miles were covered and over a million Russian soldiers were captured or killed. That's a lot of men. The Germans were making pretty good progress, but they didn't count on one thing. The Blitzkrieg was not quite fast enough, and the calendar caught up with them. On October the 7th, the first snow fell of the season and turned all the roads into a muddy quagmire so that the equipment didn't function. Then on November the 15th, the ground had finally frozen, so they were on the road to Moscow again. But then just two weeks after that, the temperature dropped to 50 degrees below zero. And that meant that none of their equipment would function. You couldn't crank the armored vehicles and the tanks. The airplanes didn't get off the ground. The artillery wouldn't fire. Artillery shells were encased in frozen grease. It had to be chipped off before you could put the shell in the chamber and the Russian men were very well equipped for winter fighting, but the Germans didn't even have any winter uniforms. So it was evident that you needed to be able to live in the land if you're going to win the victory. The Russians brought in 18 divisions from Siberia, who were well trained and accustomed to functioning in harsh wintry weather, And that marked the beginning of the end for any hopes of victory in Russia for the Germans. So our lesson today is all about the Israelites learning to live in a promised land. And God is going to give them some specific things that they need to do to make sure they set up in the land that's going to help them as they uh, see subsequent generations coming into the land there. Now, how does that apply to us? we have to learn how to live the Christian life. To become a Christian, you don't have to do anything. You just lift up the empty hands of faith. To be a Christian, you have to learn how to live the abundant Christian life, or it may not turn out to be so abundant. It may turn out to be like a wild roller coaster ride. And there are ups where everybody is exuberant and enthusiastic, And then there are downs in the bottom where everything is in despair and dismay. But I think God intended for the Christian life to be an onward and upward progression of becoming conformed to the image of His Son and living this abundant life that's filled with joy and gladness and hope that He has given us. Now evidently this is what Christ was talking about when He said, Go and make disciples teaching them all these things that I have taught you. Then, of course, we have the epistles to help us understand how those things fit in the New Testament church. Well, if we're going to live in the land of blessing, we have to learn how to stay in that land, how to stay in the abundant life. So we ask ourselves the question, are we willing to take action? Whatever that training may be, whatever the necessity is of staying in the land, are we willing to take action? Now, take action. That's a curious term. Where do we take it? Well, we take it all the way to the abundant life. And that's, I think, what God intends for us. So, taking action, we see in Joshua 18, 1-3 we see that uh, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. We covered that last week. The land was subdued before them. And there remained among the sons of Israel seven tribes who had not divided their inheritance. So Joshua said to the sons of Israel, How long will you put off entering to take possession of the land which the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, has given you? We've been with the Israelites when they crossed the Jordan River and camped in Gilgal. We were with them when they marched around Jericho 13 times and gave the shout of victory and the walls came tumbling down. We saw their failure at Ai and God's remedy for sin in the camp. We saw the southern campaign victorious for the Israelites and the northern campaign. And we saw victory over 31 kings of the Canaanite nations. God protecting them, God providing for them at every step along the way. Uh, We see now that the land is being allotted to the tribes as God intended. But some of the tribes have not gone out to claim their possession. And this is what Joshua is talking to them about. In order to enjoy the fullness of God's blessing, the Israelites have to learn how to live in this promised land. The strength of the enemy has been broken, but there are still little pockets of resistance that they're going to have to go around and expel the Canaanites from the land. What does that mean for us as a Christian? One time we were in the bondage of sin, but through the power of Christ's blood shed on Calvary, we were set free from that bondage. Then we moved in to a new situation. A new land of blessing, as it were. Just as the Israelites were headed toward the promised land. But when they got out of bondage in Egypt, they spent almost four decades wandering around in the wilderness. They were not in, the, in bondage down in Egypt, but they were not experiencing this abundant life of the promised land that God had for them. Finally, they made it into the land with Joshua. And now he's trying to get them to fully take control, take possession of what God has given. And as we talked about before, live life to the fullest with everything that God has given us to equip us to do that. Sometimes Christians may be in the land living the abundant life, but then begin to drift back toward the wilderness. And you may have known some Christians at the end of the line who were almost back at the gates of Egypt because they just weren't living the abundant life. There was no joy, no gladness, and it seemed that things were just a kind of a drudgery of trying to grind it on out till the end. The joy of salvation can be lost. Now, we don't lose our salvation. Paul tells us in Philippians 1.6 that we can be confident of this very thing, He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. But we can lose our hope. We can lose our confidence. We can lose our motivation. And the enemy likes to see that. Because that's a very poor advertisement for the Christian life. A Christian who is sad. A Christian who is unhappy. A Christian who is defeated we noted that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And we see that in the Scripture, His grace, all the things that we enjoy, on this side of Calvary. But sometimes God gives us things that we wouldn't necessarily choose, circumstances or situations, but that He knows would help us to grow, to be conformed to the image of Christ. They might appear on the surface like something undesirable. But as we get into them, we find that we can live the abundant life even through the challenges. And we see in history, through the challenge of war, famine, pestilence, death, we see Christians who shine brightly through all of those things. Now, the Apostle Paul reminds us in his second letter to Timothy, uh, there in chapter 2, he reminds us that the Christian life is like that of an athlete, one who strives for mastery in the games, in the King James. He doesn't run just one race and then rusticate out in the country somewhere saying to himself, well, I've won that race, now I'm going to take off six months and just get some rest, and then we'll see what happens after that. No, generally, if he's a serious athlete, he's still working out. He doesn't rest on past achievements, he does what he needs to do to get ready for the next race. He has some a training regimen that he's following. He has a coach who is taking him through some rigorous regimen of exercise. Why does an athlete do all these things? I only know one reason. That would be to win. Here in 1 Corinthians 9.24, Paul tells us, Do you not know that those who run in a a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way, not as without aim. I box in such a way, not just shadow boxing, but I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly, after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified." Not disqualified as a Christian, but disqualified for the service that he might have rendered had he been in there running the race. The good news here is that we can all win the race. Run in such a way that we may win. Notice he said, I buffet my body. Not I buffet my body. It's (laughs) discipline that he's talking about on this occasion. And as we look in the New Testament, we see some similar characteristics. Endure training. It's for discipline you endure. God deals with you as sons in Hebrews 12. Choose a rigorous lifestyle. Endure hardship with me, Paul says. It's a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Work diligently. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Follow the rules. An athlete doesn't win unless he competes according to the rules. Second 2 Timothy 2, five. Accept sacrifice. No discipline seems to be pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, harvest of righteousness and peace. Later on, you win the race. Receive war- rewards in due season if we don't faint. Profit from experience. Maintaining a proper attitude. The attitude of Christ, we're told in Philippians 2. It requires special equipment or tools sometimes weapons, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, sword of the Spirit. We give focused attention to the task as an athlete, and we learn to overcome failure. So a Christian has everything on that list. He has a mentor, or a disciple maker, or a teacher, or someone who's been down the road before him who is helping him to come along and to learn how to live this abundant life. Christian understands that just like the athlete, he can't depend on past victories. He can't depend on some mountaintop experience where his emotions are all wrought up. Now, that's good. I'm not against emotions. They're a good thing. God gave them to us. But emotions won't win the race. It takes a lot of other things besides just getting fired up and telling myself that I can do it. I'm talking about the workouts, the self-discipline, the mental attitude of the Christian life, that we would believe it's all worth it because we can run this race with perseverance and we can win in our serving the Master. And even as Paul said, I've run the race, fought the fight, finished the course. God's blessing has been promised to to the tribes of Israel way back in Deuteronomy 33. He's promised them victory in the land, longevity, Power, strength, blessing, everything that they're going to need to conquer the enemy. Joshua asked, how long are you guys going to put off taking possession of the land? In other words, when are you going to take action and begin to experience the fullness of all God has planned for you? What about us? Are we possessing everything that God has for us in the abundant life. Do we know how to do that? Do we know how to walk in the Spirit on a daily basis? Surely there are going to be crises that come in life, but we don't want to be on that wild roller coaster of things are looking pretty good, it's great, we're feeling good, and then all of a sudden a crash down on the bottom based on something else that's outside of our control. We want to be able to respond in strength to those things, the strength that God gives. Alan Redpath in the book that we've been following, Victorious Christian Living, describes the ruins of Hadrian's Wall in England near the Scottish border. This once marked the boundary of the mighty Roman Empire. If you went there, you would find old fortifications, you would find some castles, and you would find some towers, and some of them would be in a complete state of disrepair, and others would look like they were just built recently. What was the difference? Hundreds of years ago, the English and the Scottish people didn't get along very well. And the Scots would be coming in to raid them from the north, so the English built castles and fortifications there near the border. Some of those castles had a source, a constant source of pure water from a secret spring within the castle. Others had to have their water supply piped in from a well some distance from the castle. You wonder why they didn't think about that when they were building. But if you were one of the Scots, what would you do when you got there? Cut off the water supply and then besiege the castle and wait until they got so thirsty or were starving they couldn't stand it, and that's exactly what they did. Well, the castles that you see are the ones that had that good supply of water and could be defended and stand even today. What does that say for us? It's a reminder that we have a spring of living water within. John in John 7 calls it a river. It's that living water that flows within us. And we've got to be able to tap into that spring. How do we tap into it? Well, we get with God and His Word We trust the Holy Spirit to help us understand that Word, and we let that Word minister to our spirits to bring that joy in what God is doing in our lives to help us see where He's going. What is He trying to accomplish in the experiences of life that we have? And then we pray to Him. And we know that we don't have to have Uh, to get along outside entertainment or indulgences or prepackaged spiritual growth that comes through some kind of experience that we have. Now, nothing wrong with experiences, but the battle is won down in the trenches on a day-to-day basis as we walk with the Lord. And we think about the athlete going out there to work out again. When he doesn't maybe feel like it, but yet he knows that's going to be part of winning the race down the road. How about our mental attitude? Your mind should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, it says. When you continue to do the things that we do as Christians, go to church, pray, read the Bible, trust in God, do you really expect God to do anything? Do you expect Him to do anything unusual. When you came to church this morning, did you expect an unusual blessing from God? Or was it just, well, this is what we do according to my religious standard. We get up on Sunday and we go to church and we press on. We need to be there. Well, that's not uh, exactly the attitude that's going to be rewarded, I don't think. We want to be expecting God to do something great in our lives, and in the lives of those for whom we pray, and in the lives of those who are part of our family, part of our church family. We're looking for God to do big things. Now we come to the second section of what they had to learn in the land, and this is in Joshua 20, prosecuting accidents. What if you lived in ancient Israel, and you were out chopping wood one day, and there was a man helping you with that one of your neighbors, And suddenly the axe head flew off the handle and hit him right in the head and killed him. And suppose it were known that you owed that man some money. What do you do then? Things don't look too good. There were no witnesses to what happened. And now, somehow, you've got to deal with that. Well, God never wanted the guilty to go free. He wanted justice to be enacted. But he was also very careful that there would be mercy and that those who were not guilty, the innocent, would not be punished for something that they didn't do. So, do you know what he did? You probably know where we're going. He made provision for those who had been involved in an accidental killing. It was the cities of refuge. Now this is a little longer section, but let's read this. The Lord spoke to Joshua saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, Designate the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who kills any person unintentionally without premeditation may flee there, and they shall become your refuge from the avenger of blood. And he shall flee to one of these cities, and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and state his case in the hearing of the elders of that city. And they shall take him into the city to them and give him a place so that he may dwell among them. Now if the avenger of blood pursues him, then they shall not deliver the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor without premeditation and did not hate him beforehand. And he shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment, until the death of the one who is high priest in the land in those days. Then the manslayer shall return to his own city and to his own house, to the city from which he fled. Here are the cities of refuge that are going to be established that anyone can gain access to easily in the land because there are six of them. There are six over on the east side of the Jordan where the tribes of Yad and a half-tribe of Manasseh and Dan. And then there over on the west side of Jordan, there are three more. Three on either side of the Jordan. Anywhere you were. Even if you were an alien Gentile in the country, you could make it to the city of refuge if you had been involved in an accidental killing. The avenger of blood was simply a representative from the deceased man's family who was to make sure that justice was to be accomplished. The word in the Hebrew language is goel. He was the goel. And the goel was to be feared, you can imagine, because he had those familial ties. He was going to pursue that person until he found him, and hopefully he was going to bring him to justice. So the penalty for murder, as with 18 other crimes in the Old Testament, was capital punishment, the death penalty. This was not a Jewish institution. This didn't come from the Mosaic Law. This was established by God way back in Genesis, uh, right at the beginning there. In Genesis 9, 6, we see, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made man. So the purpose of this capital punishment was not based on well-being in society that this is a good deterrent to crime or that people will see this and not kill anybody else, it was because man was created in God's image. And when you mar the image of God, that's a serious thing. Later on in Exodus, Moses explained further, Exodus 21:12, "...he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death." However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him, to my, take him from my altar that he may die. In Numbers 35, we're told that unpunished murderers defile the land. I wonder what that says about abortion for us. At any rate, we have to do something about that. The job of the goel was to track down the murderer and deliver him over to the authorities for investigation and for execution if necessary. But first, first, Deuteronomy 17 and verse 6, "...whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness." The hands of the witness shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people, so you shall put away evil from among you. Now you'd better be careful with your testimony in a capital case, because perjury was one of those 18 things punishable by death. The accused was brought before a court of justice. Did you just get away with murder? when you went to the city of refuge? Well, not exactly. Numbers 35.12 They shall be be cities of refuge for you from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation in judgment. Here the city magistrates would bring him to a fair hearing in court, and he would be tried, and they would decide if he is guilty or if he is not. Now, if he's not guilty, does he just go free? Not exactly. Because any time you have someone who is killed, there's probably a culpable degree of carelessness involved. So we see that he doesn't just go free. He has to stay in the city of refuge. He takes up residence there. In the city of refuge, and he has to remain there under protection until the death of the high priest. That could be a long time. Then he was free to return home. If he left prematurely, he forfeited his legal protection. You could see where this would motivate people to be very careful with the rules of safety and that they made sure everyone was well taken care of. The life of your fellow man was protected. What does this say to the Christian? Sometimes we are quick to assign intent to others. We don't know why they did what they did, really. Maybe they're really struggling with something down inside. We don't know why they said what they said. There may have been a reason for them saying that. So we want to give them the benefit of the doubt. God has given us a city of refuge, as it were, and we want to have that same mercy and compassion on others. Psalm 46, 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. You see that term 16 times in the book of Psalms. God is our refuge. So here we have another Old Testament picture of Christ. The needy person has easy access to Christ, anybody that knows about the gospel. Christ is available to everyone, not just the Israelites, just like the city of refuge. You go there to live, not just for the weekend. And sometimes we see that seed that's planted on the rocky soil and sprouts up for a little while, but there's no root. And no, we go to Christ to live for the duration. Christ is the only hope for the one in need. To benefit from Christ's protection, you have to stay within His boundaries. If you're going to get the benefits from the abundant life, you've got to be living the abundant life. And full freedom comes with the death of the high priest. Christ was our high priest who committed his life, a ransom for many, for all of us. So we see the prosecuting of accidents, and now we want to be very careful with that, assigning intent and accusing people. And we come right down to the last section in Joshua 22, investigating accusations. One day many years ago, a man called me on the phone and he asked if Yvonne and I would accompany him and his wife on a Sunday afternoon after church over to the home of another family because he wanted to confront that lady with accusations that she had spread around the city about him and one of the ladies who worked in his office. This was pretty serious business. I thought to myself as I answered the phone, oh no, this is not going to be a Sunday school picnic. And uh, sure enough, when we got there, uh, she met us at the door. We asked if we could come in. He introduced Yvonne and me. And there was a very icy atmosphere. And he confronted this lady with these rumors that were being spread by her. And he had her dead to the rights. And she did not like it at all. But she had to admit that she had been the perpetrator Of some of those lies is what they were because the wife was friends with the woman, and there was absolute. This man was a professional man above reproach, well known, well liked in the community. So after we got through that difficult session, he said to me, Why don't you lead us in prayer? What in the world do you pray after something like that? Thank you for this lovely day, Lord, and the good fellowship we've enjoyed here this afternoon. Thank you for this lady who has repented of her lies and accusations concerning this good man she spread all over town. Thank you that she has decided to lay her tongue on the altar if she can find one big enough. Please guide this lady as she tries to reel in all of her gossip and in the future help this good sister to keep her big mouth closed. I don't know what I prayed. I know I was very nervous at that time. Well, that's the kind of thing now that has happened in Israel. And we want to take a quick look in just a couple of minutes. I'm going to just tell you the story. In Joshua 22, the sons of Reuben, and I said Dan a while ago, excuse me, it's Reuben. Sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, returned home. Now remember, those were the guys on the way through who saw some good pasture land over east of the Jordan River before you get in the promised land proper. And so they said, hey, how about we settle? We have a lot of cattle. How about we settle over here? And uh, Joshua said, okay, you can do that if you'll go in and help us fight these wars against the Canaanites. And so it's time for them now to go back home, and they do. They go back home in victory. And they uh, get set up there in the land, and they decide... Right on the border of the Jordan River, that they will build a huge altar. An altar. Now, the guys over in the Promised Land look at that and they check it out to see what it is. And sure enough, it's an altar right there where it can be seen from the other side. And they are not happy about that at all because there is only one place that you can have an altar. And that was at the tabernacle in Shiloh. And later on at the temple in Jerusalem. You can't just go around offering sacrifices anywhere. Uh, And so they were very much upset. And they decided that they would go to war against their brothers over east of the river. And so they send a delegation over to check this thing out. And there's the response that they were given in verse 26 if you're in your Bible there. Therefore we said, that's the guys over east of the river that had built the altar. Therefore we said, let us build an altar not for burnt offering or for sacrifice. Rather, it shall be a witness between us and you, between our generations after us, that we are to perform the service of the Lord. So they were not building an altar as a place of sacrifice. They were building an altar as a memorial that they served the Lord even as the rest of Israel served the Lord. And here's the report on that. Then Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the priest, and the leaders returned from the sons of Reuben, from the sons of Gad, from the land of Gilead, to the land of Canaan, to the sons of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the word pleased the sons of Israel, and the sons of Israel blessed God. And they did not speak of going up against them in war, to destroy the land in which the sons of Reuben, sons of Gad, were living. And the sons of Reuben, sons of Gad, called the altar witness. For they said, it's a witness between us that the Lord is God. So we want to be sure that we investigate before we instigate. We don't want to start a war because we didn't have complete information about something. We want to inquire before you light the fire of gossip or rumor or whatever it might be. James 3 says the tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It sets the whole course of his life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. Pretty serious. We want to find out before we set out long before the shootout. Because when the shootout comes, it can be rough. We want to substantiate before we initiate. And finally, importantly, we want to pray before we spread hearsay. So what are they learning in the land, about how to live in the land? Take action, do whatever you need to do to root out these little pockets of resistance that are still in the land so we can enjoy the blessing of God to the fullness. We do the same thing to enjoy the abundant life. Root out those little pockets of resistance. We show mercy in prosecuting accidents. Learn not to be careless, of course, as well. But when an accident happens, we need to investigate that. We need to see what the causes were. Do we need to be more careful next time? And then investigate before you instigate accusations. Let's pray. Lord, we see these instructions that You gave to Your people Israel and we see how they very well could apply to us. We do pray that we would follow those Beatitudes, that we might be meek in our interaction with others, that we might be merciful, because you tell us that the merciful will be shown mercy. We pray, Lord, that uh, we might love our brothers, encourage one another, and we pray when things come up that we might investigate carefully and see if there's a way that we could be a peacemaker, because you tell us, blessed are the peacemakers. So we ask as we seek to live this abundant life that you would show us pockets of resistance, maybe some things that we have overlooked. Maybe we need to employ some better equipment or weapons that we haven't been using lately the study of our Word, the Word of God, or uh, maybe some scripture memory. We pray that You would show us the things that You want us to do. And Lord, we recognize that uh, whenever we do anything, it's not that that accomplishes the victory in the race. It is Your grace that is poured out upon us that anything that we do would be effective in accomplishing the goal. Thank You that You've made possible this abundant life through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in His name. Amen.